Welcome to another STEM Key Podcast. Today, we'll be talking about mentoring international students in STEM. This podcast will discuss international students and the myriad of challenges they face in science, technology, engineering, math, and medicine, as well as social and cultural acceptance at U.S. institutions of higher education. These challenges significantly impact their self-identity and success in STEM. Here, our panelists will highlight challenges that plague these students, including employment, language, and financial issues. They will also suggest potential solutions that can be implemented to address these issues in order to create a welcoming space for international students. Our panelists today, I'll start with Dr. Hazetta D. Schuler. She is not only a student advocate, but she's also a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant, a STEM mentor, and an IO psychologist. But she is also a certified Lean Six Sigma Green Belt professional. Dr. Schuler has mentored more than 250 undergraduates, over 100 graduates and medical residents, and more than 750 middle and high school students in STEM education and DEI consulting. Currently, she serves as a member of the Winston-Salem Budget Committee, conducting studies and evaluating city services while implementing strategies to turn around underperforming departments. As a mentor, she enjoys watching marginalized students blossom into successful STEM leaders. She produces lasting results with students, colleagues, and clients due to her skills. Over 20 DEI articles have been published by Dr. Schuler and her cohort of junior STEM faculty and postdocs in the last two years. Another of our panelists is Dr. Elsie Calderon-Fencer. She is an administrative director for the National Center for Children and Families and the Consortium for Policy Research in Education at Teachers College, Columbia University. She is also a research fellow in Dr. Antner's laboratory at Vanderbilt University. A Cuban-American and native of New Yorker, Dr. Calderon Spencer is a first-generation college graduate and received her EDD from the University of Pennsylvania in higher education management and her MPA from the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Dr. Calderon Spencer's passion and expertise traverse higher education, specifically diversity and equity initiatives in promoting inclusion in academia. She is a powerful advocate for community initiatives and collaborations to improve the educational outcomes of underserved populations, specifically BIPOC faculty and students. She sits on various subcommittees at Teachers College that promote DEI programming, engage the effectiveness of current policies and strategies affecting BIPOC and institutional culture overall. Dr. Calderon Spencer has published articles on various DEI topics such as revitalizing STEM pipelines, postdoc and faculty recruitment in STEM fields, and the important role of mentoring and promoting DEI in STEM. She was listed in sales 100 Inspiring Hispanic Latinx Scientists in America, and she is known in her community as a key partner and thought leader for social justice initiatives. She continues to perform other outreach initiatives with various community members and anchor institutions throughout the higher education diaspora. We also have with us Ella Sawa, and she is a graduate student at the University of Rochester. 
Her research focuses on using nanoparticles as a drug delivery method to improve healing and musculoskeletal tissues like the tendon. She is also passionate about improving diversity and equity in STEM. Other panelists is Dr. Maria Namwanje, and she is a clinical genomics scientist at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. She is originally from Uganda and East Africa. She has spent the past 10 years researching the genetics of obesity and has recently pivoted to clinical diagnostics of pediatric cancers. And I am Dr. Sissy Wilson, your moderator for today. I am an associate professor of communications at MCUTS at Union University. My most recent research casts a light on the lack of research featuring students and scholars of color in the field of communication. And welcome to our podcast. So I want to get started talking about international students and their employment barriers. Ella, could you share with us how many hours are international students allowed to work? Right. So international students are allowed to work and get paid up to 20 hours per week during the course of the semester. And they can work up to 40 hours per week during the winter and summer breaks when school is not in session. They can also work or take internships that are related to their course of study during this summer break. So, Dr. Schuler, can you share with us any other employment barriers international students may face? First, the job must be on campus. And if it's off campus, it must be related to one's major. And as we know, this could be very challenging for not only international students, but a lot of students. And the students who are international must be on an F-1 visa and may work off campus only during the first year of their study. And so just like you said, Dr. Schuler, lots of college students work and go to school. But it seems like for international students, the working and the going to school together, they have an additional problem or additional barriers. Elsie, can you explain those complications? Sure. So many international students have the added responsibility of financially supporting themselves and their families back home. So limiting their income creates this added burden that they may find difficult to overcome without outside assistance. Many international students may even have food insecurity issues because every penny that they earn is already spent, leaving them no avenue for recourse on properly feeding themselves. Another employment barrier that international students face is that it also exposes them to exploitation, where if not properly supervised, they can be forced to work for hours that they're not compensated, which falls under the umbrella of wage theft. And so in addition to the employment barriers international students face, what financial difficulties do they face, Maria? One of the most important factors is the lack of access to federal funding. This is a barrier to entry and a barrier to retention of international students or scholars within the academic setting. International students cannot qualify for federal grants, and this includes the likes of the NIH F31 or, or F32 grants, NSF grants, and some K99s. And these are very important to building one's career. Uh, lack of this funding for uh, graduate or postdoctoral scholars can avoid their ability to 
advance within the academic setting. For example, some institutions will not hire you for faculty positions or senior scientist positions if you've not demonstrated any success in attaining a federal grant. My next question probably seems like a given, might seem obvious, but are there language barriers that international students face that have long-term effects? Dr. Schuler? Yes. Because of difficulties with language, most international students experience low self-esteem, and we know where that can lead to and feel uncomfortable speaking up during classes as they fear being laughed at or not understood. And this happens quite often. And by this happening in such a small setting, they don't feel like they belong and is also a way to affect their academic performance and bring about other stressors in their psychological surroundings, such as they begin to miss their own cultural elements, such as their food, their family, their friends, their religion. And so these barriers in language and not being understood could do great damage to their academic performance. Elsie, could you share with us the different types of visas that international students are granted to be enrolled at U.S. institutions? Yes, absolutely. So international students can apply for different visas and attaining a visa can vary and it depends on things such as the purpose of their visit, length of stay, employment status or classification, and location restrictions. Additionally, there exist different visa types that are required for specific groups of students, depending on their educational levels, such as undergraduate, graduate, and postdoctoral students. And these visas include the F-1, the H-1B, the J-1, and the optional practical training, also known as OPTs. And just to add on to Dr. Spencer's point, the F-1 visa is the most common type of visa that full-time international undergraduate and graduate students possess at U.S. accredited institutions of higher learning. And the stipulations that F-1 visas requires is that students must have at least 50% financial support upfront and must show intent to return to their home country within 60 days post-graduation. So they are allowed to work off campus after one year of study and get paid for that. So this allows them to obtain some work experience. And they can also apply for another kind of visa called the OPT upon graduation. Additional information about the OPT is that it's also a temporary employment authorization document that is granted to F1 students. However, this employment is restricted to their major area of study. Most students, once they graduate, are eligible to receive originally 12 months of employment authorization. STEM students have an added advantage of receiving an extra 24 months after the expiration of that initial 12-month period. The J-1 visa is for undergraduates and postdoctoral students, and is essential a work visa that allows U.S. companies to hire non-immigrants in specific occupations. And remember, the key word is specific. A minimum requirement is the possession of a bachelor's degree from an accredited university. 
The H-1 visa is for graduate and postdoctoral students and is essentially a work visa that allows U.S. companies to hire non-immigrants in specific occupations. A minimum requirement is a possession of a bachelor's degree from an accredited university. So when we're talking about the minimum requirements for visas, are there limits, Ella, to how many credits that international students can take? Yes, definitely. And this varies depending on the type of visa they have. For example, full-time international students on F-1 visas are expected to take between 9 to 12 credits per semester to ensure that they can remain in status. For graduate students who have teaching responsibilities, nine credits is usually considered full-time. And going above or below this stipulated range without prior permission can jeopardize a student's visa status, as well as their chances of losing fellowships that they might be beneficiaries of. This is especially because the students have to maintain a certain level of academic standing that they may not be able to achieve if they take too many classes or too little classes. And so how do these limitations provide barriers to these international students, Dr. Schuler? Well, since they have to obey these rules, it is unflexible if they are facing other emergencies, such as having to take care of their families or just being sick, that prevent them from meeting these requirements. They must still attend classes and complete their coursework, or they must face the consequences related to their visa status and academic standing. Thank you. Ladies, for all of the information that you shared with us, more information on international students in STEM can be found in our pending paper that will be published in the spring. There you will find more information such as visa requirements, international student funding and sources, and issues pertaining to COVID-19 and international student restrictions. This conversation is critical to have because it discusses a group of students who are often left out of higher education conversations but are critical components of its success and sustainability. So now, since we're doing our podcast for CMT, what type of tea are we drinking? Ella? Right, so I'm having the chai latte. And I like the chai latte because I have a sweet tooth and the chai latte is naturally sweet. So it doesn't make me feel guilty about adding more sugar because it's already sweet. And that's why I like it. I might need to try that. Elsie? Sure. So I love fruit and I love sweetness as well. I like the passion tea by Tazo. It has the taste of hibiscus and orange peel for that bit of zest and rose hips. And what I really like about this tea is that it tastes great hot and cold, but I personally prefer it cold once it's sort of sat up for a bit and it just kind of enhances the taste on my palate. That sounds good. Dr. Schuler. what are you sipping on? Yes, tonight I am sipping on great lemon tea. And I love it because it's a way to clean my mind and my body. So I have been on this regimen now for several years and I find it very effective. Maria? I'm having the peach tranquility tea. I like it because of the sweetness that comes from the peach. And it also has chamomile, which adds to the tranquility and calmness at the end of the busy workday. Awesome. And I am drinking some green tea 
just to give me a little bit of a boost to my metabolism at the end of the day. All right. Thank you all so much for joining our podcast and listening to our podcast. Find us on social media. You can find Dr. Schuler on Twitter at P-S-T-R-E-N-G-P-H-E-N. You can find Ella at E-A-S-A underscore me. Elsie can be found at capital E, Elsie La Cubana. And Maria can be found on Twitter at M-N-A-M-W-A-N-J-E underscore P-H-D. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Cicely T. Wilson. Thank you.